I'd like you to imagine with me this morning that somebody hurt you. Not so hard to imagine, is it? And why is that? Because in this world, none of us escape being wronged. If you're young, it's the mean girls. If you're old, it's the golden girls. And everybody in between, life is unfortunately filled with conflicts, filled with hurts, filled with people that offend us and people that betray us and people that wrong us. The hurt that we experience, it comes on a spectrum. You know, we have the little slights, the little, the little offenses on one side, and on the other side, we have things including theft and fraud, violence, outright evil that is done against us. And if we look in the Bible, we see that this is nothing new. Uh, this has been true ever since Adam and Eve sinned. You know, Adam and Eve, they, they eat of the tree, uh, and... And uh, they, they blame each other. They blame Satan. Chapter 4, Genesis, Cain murders Abel. And pretty much the story of humanity from that point on has been unabated wronging of each other ever since. You know, the English language, it has a lot of words for being wronged. They include cheat, defame, defraud, abuse, discredit, afflict, injure, swindle, victimize, malign, maltreat, oppress, deceive, persecute, and there's a lot more from there. Apparently, it takes a lot of words to describe all the wronging that's going on in human society. I wonder if anybody's coming to your mind yet. And if not yet, this message is going to resuscitate things that you would probably just as soon forget and is going to resurrect people that you probably would just as soon not think about. In fact, I could ask the question, what is it that you would like to do to the people whose names are coming up to your mind? This message is all about that, and the text today is all about that. How do we respond? We can't, we can't somehow have a utopic view of the world where these things aren't going to happen. Uh, even within relationships that we deem incredibly valuable within family and marriage and parents and children, I mean, even in these contexts, in fact, sometimes most volatilely in these contexts, things and offenses happen. I'm, I'm told from our law enforcement, the, the call that they least like to make is a domestic violence call. They are the most volatile the most explosive of all. So the text today is going to help us. Like, if I can't stop it from happening, what do I do when it does? Like, I'm a Christian. I want to be faithful to God. How do I handle it when these inevitable, injurious actions happen against us? And part of the point that we see here is that we can't control uh, other people, but we can control our response to it. I think it was Luther that said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them out of your hair. The point is the same. The things that we can control, what, what should we do? And what Paul is going to write uh, writes here in Romans 12 is that the path to winning here is a path of freeing our hearts from the bitterness and the anger that other people's actions oftentimes uh, produce in us and also is a, a means of setting the other person free. Now, in the moment of conflict, you maybe don't want to set them free, but in the big picture, redemptively, we want them as well to be free from the burden of the offense. 
Now, last week we started getting into this because Paul starts to dig into this, and I told you, I said, Christianity is radical. And it's no more radical than in the call to responding to people who abuse us. And we saw things last week uh, like this, that we are to bless those who curse us. We're to rejoice with those uh, who outshine us. We are to weep with those who are weeping, and we are to offer ourselves with love and friendship to people that society would, would view as being on the fringes. Now that's a totally radical life, just there. But I'm here to tell you, uh, they pale in comparison to what the text tells us to do today. So if, you were, if you're still choking on what Paul wrote that we looked at last week, I'm warning you right now, you're gonna drown. You're gonna drown in what he has to say here today. Uh, you might wanna just uh, turn the TV off right now. It might be for your own, your own good. I, I mean that facetiously. I want you to stay with me here. Because listen to what Paul writes. I mean, here we get into the radical nature of Christianity. Here we go. This is Romans 12. I'm going to begin uh, in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. May God bless his word to us today. Now this may sound like crazy Christian talk uh, here, but we need to first of all see this in the broader redemptive context. And to go back to the life of Jesus, how did Jesus conduct himself? Was Jesus wronged? Oh yes, worse than any of us have ever been wronged. Jesus was wronged. How did he respond when people maligned him and even those who did violence against him? And the question is, did Jesus retaliate? And obviously the answer is no. And to the contrary, his response here is incredibly unexpected. It's somewhere between silence and doing good to his enemies. And I give you these examples, or I could give you these examples, but many of them are already coming to your mind here, no doubt. The point is this, that the founder and the hero of the story did not use the power that he had at his fingertips as a son of God to retaliate against those who were wronging him. In fact, he prayed for his executioners, asking God, forgive them, they know not what they do. And it is this Jesus, if you're a Christian here today, it's this Jesus that you have pledged your allegiance to. It is this Jesus who turns to his followers and says, now follow me, follow in my life example. And so underlying this whole section is a Christology, both in what Jesus taught and in how he lived it out. And we see in this that Christianity is a non-retaliatory faith, that Jesus was a non-retaliatory Messiah, and that Christianity is a non-retaliatory faith. One of my quarantine reading uh, books uh, has been a, an autobiography by a missionary named John Patton. And John Patton, many, many years ago, went to the islands that we now call Vanuatu. And there in those islands, the native people practiced a, 
a kind of, it's almost like a retaliatory religion where one tribe would, would do something terrible to another tribe, oftentimes killing people in that tribe. That tribe now would, would feel a religious fervor to retaliate against that other tribe. And these retaliations went on literally for generations. Every generation heaping up more anger and bitterness at the other tribes. Now what was unique about these people was not only would they would they retaliate and do violence and indeed murder people in the other tribe, it was part of their religion that they would eat the person that they had retaliated against. Imagine being John Patton and introducing a Christian worldview in a context where for generations these people have murdered and eaten one another. Now that may sound uh, completely over the top and so uncivilized, but are we so different? It was Napoleon, after all, who said, nothing smells better than the stench from the rotting corpse of my enemy. Now whether Napoleon was civilized or not, I don't know. I'll leave that to your judgment. My point is this. There is a part of our depravity that we share with uh, the, 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 the Vanuatans and uh, Napoleon and so many others. The seeds of the sins of all men lie within my own heart, McShane said. And indeed, that part of us, that flesh, there is a natural desire to retaliate when we have been wronged. And then we're introduced to Jesus Christ. And we give our hearts in faith to him and we pledge ourselves to, to, to follow him. And lo and behold, the gospel calls us out of a retaliatory sort of life. In fact, the gospel calls us into a relinquishing of our rights to retaliate, our relinquishing of our rights to be offended and to replace them with Christ-likeness. And how we do that is what this passage, maybe better than any other passage in the Bible, explains to Christians how how do we do this? How do I live a non-retaliatory life in a world where I am constantly being wronged? So we come back to the text now, and you'll notice that in almost every respect, there is something that Paul says, don't do this, and then he says, do do this, okay? Don't do this, do do this. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. So there's the don't. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now this verse is a kind of foundation verse for this entire text, and it introduces the basic Christian ethic of non-retaliation. Now you might say, well, Paul, obviously he just pulled this out of thin air. This is kind of a Pauline thing. No, this is, this is actually a Jesus thing. And other parts of the, uh, of the Bible talk about this. Here's some teachings of Jesus on this subject. Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And what we find in each of these examples is that the emphasis is on valuing something greater than whatever offense, whatever debt has been done in terms of wronging us. 
And what is that greater thing? Here it is. In conflict, the Christian must prioritize the reputation of Jesus and my own personal testimony as a follower of Jesus as being more important than whatever offense or wrong has been done against me. It's more important than me winning the argument. It's more important than me getting even. More important is the name of Jesus and the testimony of the gospel. And so what Paul says here in verse 17 is, he says, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And that Greek word there for give thought, it, it means to think beforehand, okay? Pre-thought, precog. In other words, be controlled, be measured. Don't retaliate, give thought to it. This begs the, the, the old 10-second uh, rule, right, where you, you don't respond, you give it 10 seconds at least. The Bible talks about being slow to anger, slow to speak. All of these are getting at the basic same truth, that Christians are called to not react, to not retaliate, but to give it a little time to think about how should I respond to this? What would God have me to do in this case? To pray about it. These are all things that are incredibly helpful. Because we all know that retaliation escalates the problem, doesn't it? Retaliation is like pouring gas on the fire. It just makes the thing bigger and bigger, and things can very easily take on a life of their own. I read uh, this week here in Indiana, there was a dispute between two neighbors about where the grass clippings were going relative to the property line. And they got into it, and the one Hoosier man attacked the other Hoosier man with, uh, with his grass trimmer. Now, there's a lot we could say about uh, how effective a, a, a grass trimmer could be as a, as a weapon, but this is not the point I'm making here today. The point is, is that grass clippings now is what this individual, who I think is sitting in jail today, is famous across Indiana for. Give thought to your reactions. Do what is going to be honorable, he says, in the sight of all. You know, when we're in retaliatory mode, we say really stupid things, don't we? We say things that later we're like, why did I say that? I wish I could take that back. But that's what retaliation does. If, if we had taken any time at all, we would not say what we said. We regret saying it, and now we have to back it out. So there's a, quick, a good quick uh, response. When, when emotions are engaged, give it a little time. How often I have had an email that's sent to me and it just makes me mad and I just get typing, you do this, you type it, type it, type it, type it, and I want to respond. And before I hit send, I have this little voice inside of me that says, don't you think you should wait a little bit? Don't you think you should maybe pray about this a little bit? I wish that every time that I had that little voice inside my head, I refused to hit send. Sometimes I've hit send. Sadly. And once it's out there, there's no taking it back. I've rarely regretted the decision to sleep on it. Generally a good idea. Because when we refuse to retaliate, it tampers down the volatility. Proverbs says it this way, a soft answer turns away wrath. And people notice when you don't respond in the way that everybody else would respond, everybody's expecting you know, for, for you know, fists to come up. People notice when a Christian is calm. It is honorable, and it actually makes the gospel attractive. And that's why, that's why in conflict really is for us an opportunity. 
And that's true with your neighbor, that's true with your coworker, it's true with whoever you're having uh, some measure of conflict with. It is an opportunity to do good for the gospel. We can make great headway relationally, and we can make great, great headway re- reputationally in the way that we respond in the midst of conflict. I remember many years ago, I was at the grocery store, and I was standing in line, and ahead of me, several people in line at the grocery store was a former member of our church. Now, at the time, he was a member. I can say, thankfully, he's no longer a member, uh, because I stood there, and I watched as uh, this man, he didn't know I was in line behind him watching this, or I'm sure he would have acted in a very godly fashion, uh, as he ripped into the checkout lady because she had, you know, double scanned something on his bill. And it was one of these, he, I mean, he, it was a scene. I, I, my memory is, is loosely that every line stopped, everybody looked, this guy went off on this, this woman. I don't know how much her mistake cost him, but honestly, how bad could it be? I mean, we're talking about a double-charged peanut butter or a double-charged gallon of milk. And he left in a total huff, and everybody was looking at each other like, what is up with that guy? And I just want to know, what price did that man put on his reputation? What price did that man put on his ability to express the love of Christ? I would put it at about $2.99. And that's the way it goes in conflict. These things take on a life of their own, and before we know it, we are acting in a way that is dishonorable to the gospel of Christ. And what this verse is urging is the opposite of that. It's saying here to take a deep breath, to go slow, to be intentional, to be measured. I think of that famous scene from To Kill a Mockingbird when uh, Bob Elwell is goading Atticus Finch into fighting him. And Elwell, if you remember that scene, it's an old movie, I know, but it's a good one, and you got lots of quarantine time. Uh, spits in his face, and Atticus Finch, just, in, in, you know, big, strong guy, he just stares at him, he slowly pulls the handkerchief out of his pocket, wipes it off his face, gets in the car, and leaves. And that moment, it stands out in the movie because it's so unusual. How often would this happen on the streets? How often often would that happen in general society? And that's why I'm saying, and this is why Paul is saying, this is an opportunity for Christians to say something, something honorable, something gospel-y in the way that we respond. Did Jesus get spit on? How did he respond? What did he do? Did he get beaten? We know the answer to that. Did Jesus retaliate? And just for a moment, I, I, I would, in a sense, I would love to see what son of God retaliation level looks like. I mean, think of the power that he has at his fingertips. He hinted at it, actually, when he said, could I not call on my father and have instantly 10,000 angels fighting for me? You wanna talk about power. Jesus had power. And yet, how did he respond? What did he do? Do we look at that and we say, oh, Jesus, he was weak. Or Jesus, he wasn't man enough. He didn't man up to Pilate. Or is true strength, power under control. I think of the verse in 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Friend, you got something in your life, maybe even in the recent past here, where you acted dishonorably, or maybe you're in the midst of conflict right now and you're wondering, what do I do? Do what's honorable in the sight of all. That's a great, that's a great guideline. Now, he goes on here, and he actually goes on to one of my favorite verses in Romans. Look at what he says next. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. Now, I love this verse because over the years in ministry, I have seen it over and over again, and frankly, in my own life, where there are sometimes situations where you cannot, you can't resolve it. Like, there are, there are some things that happen in this life. There is no untangling of the knot. It doesn't matter how many counseling sessions. It does, there's no way for this thing to become undone. And this little verse, I think, is so helpful because it tells us, it's just, it's Paul being honest about the broken world that we live in. And he says, if possible, live at peace with everyone. We see a little law, we see a little grace in this. The law is that we are called to be a peaceable people. Christians ought to be peaceable people. This is true within the church. That's why we try, try to live in harmony with one another. It also is true in the way that we conduct ourselves outside the church. We are to be peaceable type folk. We are to be slow to anger, abounding in love. Christians are called to be peacemakers. We are not called to be the peace breakers. And why is that? It's because the gospel is the gospel of love. And a people that are called to display a gospel of love are not going to be the prickly people in the neighborhood. We're not going to be the people at the, at the school council that everyone's like, what is his problem? We are going to be we're going to be like oil and balm in the, in, the, in the community. We are going to be peaceable, peacemaking people. We don't go to war over grass clippings. We don't agitate. Why is that? Because we're under the word of God, which says things like this, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone. And what I love about this verse is even when we are wanting peace, Sometimes it's just not possible. That's why that little verse there, if possible, live peaceably with everyone. You know, Disney says, and they lived happily ever after. Can we just say that's a lie, all right? It doesn't matter what marriage you're in. It doesn't matter what family you're in. It doesn't matter what neighborhood you're in or where you work or what games you play or where you recreate. Everywhere we go, all the time, there is always the possibility and often the probability that conflict and hurt and wrong is about to happen. We see this even in the early church where with the Holy Spirit flowing with such power and thousands of people coming to faith in Christ and the, the apostles are, I mean, they're healing people and miracles are happening even in the midst of the greatest sort of display of the power of the Holy Spirit, we find that they're not getting along with each other, that there's conflict Paul and Barnabas famously had conflict. He urges the Philippian women, Yodia and Sundiki, he urges them to get along. Apparently at the Church of Philippi there were two women that had a falling out. It's shocking, isn't it? Two women have a falling out. And this is the reality in a fallen world, is that sometimes peace isn't possible. And what this verse is urging is this. It's acknowledging 
that sometimes you can't fix it. But when it can't be fixed, what Paul is saying, make sure it's not because you're not willing to do it. In other words, the Christian heart is always to be open to reconciliation and forgiveness and peace. So if possible, live at peace with everyone. This verse should only be applied after sincere and prolonged effort to resolve matters. Don't just quote this verse and be like, ah, I'm not gonna do the hard work here, no. Make sure that you're not the party that's keeping the peace from happening. If possible, live at peace with everyone. Okay, so far you're like, hey, this hasn't been that hard. I was kind of choking last week. I don't think I'm drowning this week. He overplayed his hand. Here's where it gets tough, okay? Look at what he says in verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Are you choking yet, church? Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So what is it that we are not to do? Never avenge yourselves. What are we supposed to do? Let God make it right. Now this just sounds completely un-American, does it not? I mean, we Americans, we, we love the avenging thing. In fact, the top grossing movies over the last couple years have been, it's called The Avengers, right? We love avenging, we love Avengers, we love the theme where people are getting their comeuppance, where the chickens are coming home to roost, where people are getting what's coming to them. We like that, and it feels especially good when it's not our chickens that are coming to our house to roost. But look at what it says here. He says, beloved, it's almost as if Paul knows he's about to say something, this is gonna be a hard truth. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Did he just say never? Did you see that word there? Never avenge yourselves. Now you might hear that and you're like, what? I mean, don't even begin to say that I can't avenge myself because I'm telling you right now, I have to do something. I ha it is so frustrating when so-and-so does such and such and I get so annoyed in the midst of it and it makes me want to do this or that. What is the this or that? What is it that you or I, what do we naturally want to do when somebody has wronged us? And Paul here says, whatever you're doing, make sure that it's not avenging. Make sure that it is not revenge. This is not a vengeance. This is not me getting back, making things even. Now that would seem impossible. And I'll admit to you, many things in my life, there's, it's just like, and maybe you're in the midst of one of those times and you're like, that is just, that's a verse I question the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Like, could God have really suggested this? But that's what he says. Don't take matters into your own hand. Don't be a vigilante here. Notice the, the, the language. What am I supposed to do with it? He says this, leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to the wrath of God. It is, it, the word literally means this. It means make room, okay? Make room. Maybe you could visualize this where somebody offends you where you're like, okay, I'm just gonna sort of step back and let God take this one. I'm leaving room for the wrath of God. I'm acknowledging and understanding that God is the avenger, that God has promised that he is going to make all things right. And how does God do it? He does it with his wrath, the wrath of God. This is not as nearly as popular a theme as the love of God or the grace of God, 
but it is very much a biblical concept, the wrath or the anger of God. This has been a theme in Romans. It was introduced right at the beginning of, in, in Romans 1. I've noted it many times as we've gone through Romans that the beginning point of Paul's gospel is not the love of God or the grace of God, which is typically where we start. His starting point is the wrath of God, the anger of God against sin and sinners, that all of us are under the judgment of God. We are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. And yet we have found in Romans that that wrath has been satisfied, or that theological word atoned. It has been atoned for how? By the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Trust in Jesus, the gospel says, and God's wrath is not set against you anymore. But that does not mean that God's wrath is gone. No. God is still angry with sin, and God is angry with sinners. And we have a promise here from God. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32, where, where God says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Did you get that? A promise from God. I will repay, says the Lord. God is going to make every wrong right. How does he do it? It is a function of his wrath, his holiness, and his judgment. Let's talk a moment about the wrath of God, the vengeance of God. In what way is God an avenger? The Bible talks about three ways that God avenges the wrongs that are done against him. The first one you might not guess, uh, but it's government. God has so instituted the world that human government is one of the means by which the wrath of God is exerted against those who do injustice. And we're going to see this in just a few uh, verses later here in chapter 13, that, that God, God uses government as a weapon of wrath. One role of government is to punish the evildoer, at least when they're functioning as God intended. And when it does, that is a God-ordained means by which evil is avenged. Here's the verse, chapter 13, verse four. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, get that, an avenger. Who are the real avengers in society? They don't wear uh, costumes. Uh, they're, they're, they wear a badge, or they, they, uh, they wear a, a soldier's uniform. He is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now in June, we're gonna get into this. We're gonna explore chapter 13, the clearest teaching in the whole Bible on the role of government I don't know, does that seem relevant to us right now? Possibly, indeed. But civic government is, a, is an avenger of the, the wrath of God. Secondly is the cross. The cross is one place, one very critical place, where the wrath of God is on display. The cross of Jesus was where God's divine wrath met with God's divine love. And both of those displayed as the infinite debt of our sin collided with the infinite power of God's wrath as God satisfied, as Jesus satisfied that wrath with infinite righteousness. He dies in our place. Why did the sky grow dark from 12 to 3? It was a visual of the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus. Jesus experienced hell for us and died in our place. And the result of that is that every wrong or offense 
that a Christian does has already been wrath paid through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if that's not good enough for you, you have a very deficient view of the cross. The third way we have God's wrath being exerted is hell. Hell is God's wrath absent God's love, absent God's grace, absent God's love. It is wrath unabated forever. So what does it mean to leave room for God's wrath? It means this, is that when somebody wrongs me, when I, when I have been injured by somebody or what, how, whatever it is, big or small, the Christian does not view myself as the avenger. I am not Iron Man. I am not going to make this right. Rather, we step back. We leave room for God's wrath to make this right. And in some cases, if it is a Christian who's injured me, I am stepping back, but I'm also looking to the cross and understanding that this is something Jesus already paid for. And if this is not a Christian, I'm stepping back and I'm understanding that God has promised someday every wrong will be paid for, that his wrath is going to repay everything. So here's the point. Nobody gets away with anything. Nobody gets away with anything. That person that swindled you, that cheated you, that, that did some wrong against you, if that person is not a Christian, God's gonna make it right. If that person is a Christian, that's a sin that was paid for along with mine as well. And so the Christian with a high view of the cross and a high view of the wrath of God doesn't have to take things into his own hands. Just step back, leave room for God's wrath. Don't retaliate. Don't be a vigilante. Don't doubt that God is going to make this right. Don't be an avenger. And let's be honest. How often does our avenging actually make things better? Doesn't it almost like every time make things terribly worse? When I think that I'm going to just blast this person verbally, or I think I'm going to somehow do some act of violence, doesn't it always make things worth, worse? Isn't the knot now more tangled? Are the issues not now more unresolvable? Is there not more baggage now? And doesn't the other person somehow derive some sick pleasure knowing that they've got our goat? But when we respond with kindness or with generosity, it does something very different to the other person. And that's what Paul now encourages. He says, in light of the fact that God's wrath is going to make everything right, here now, like if, if you feel like you gotta do something and, and you, know, you wanna you want to put the fists up or something, here's a better thing to do. What is it? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, he says here, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Heap burning coals on his head. This is not language we oftentimes use. Uh, this is totally biblical language. If you're familiar with this, it's because you've read the Bible. It uh, it also comes out of the Old Testament, and it's actually debated what it means. Uh, in context, I think it has to mean that we are exerting some kind of kindness 
that instead of vengeance, instead of like, you know, turning the other cheek by hitting the other cheek, I am actually putting in stark contrast the other person's attitudes and actions in a way that actually might create a sense of shame for them. It might, it might actually be something that leads them to repent and to reconcile in a way that if I punch him in the face, will never happen. Heap burning coals on their head. Do, do kindness. I'll give you two quick examples. You know, over the years, of course, I lived singleness for a long time, and, and over the years have counseled a lot with uh, singles, and, you know, we'll have relationships in our church that'll break up. Sometimes I'll talk with a brokenhearted woman whose boyfriend has broke up with her. And I'll say to her, I'll say, listen, as much as you want to scratch his eyes out, be nothing but kind. Be nothing but kind to him. If you turn into a crazy woman, and if you send him hateful texts, and if you slander him to anybody who will listen, and if you threaten to sue him, he will lay in bed every night and he'll think to himself, I made the greatest decision of my life. But if you are kind to him, and if you communicate to his mother that you think he's an okay guy, and if you thank him for the time that he uh, spent with you and invested with you, if you are kind, he will lay in bed every night and he will think, I have made the worst decision in my life. You heap burning coals on his head. I'll give you another example of this, just a, a practical one. I have a dear friend in, uh, in pastoral ministry who one of his key team members on his staff totally stabbed him in the back. And uh, it ended very badly, that relationship. It was not pretty at all. They had a major falling out. Well, sometime later, my friend is with his family in a restaurant, and they're having dinner. This is a nice restaurant, an expensive restaurant. And lo and behold, who comes walking into the restaurant but this former staff member and his family? And they come in, and they, they go, and they sit in a, a different section of, of the restaurant. Well, my friend quickly finishes his meal with his family, pays his bill, quietly makes arrangements, and pays for that man and that table's bill as well, and they, they leave the restaurant. What did that former staff member think as he realized the generous kindness from his former boss? And this is what kindness, it says something without having to say something. It communicates something without having to communicate something. This is where goodness and kindness and responding in a counterintuitive, counter-societal way says something not only about our hearts, but in an ultimate sense, it says something about the gospel and the Savior that we believe in. And this is the power of loving our enemies. And friends, isn't this the way that God has treated us? Isn't this how God has treated us? Before you sit there and you say, you know what, it's wrong not to repay evil for evil. Was God wrong when he loved us while we were yet sinners? Was God weak when he gave Jesus hell instead of us? I mean, our whole faith is built upon a God who did not repay evil for evil. Instead, he met our spiritual hunger with Jesus, the bread of life. He met our spiritual thirsting with Jesus, the living water of eternal life. 
How did God overcome evil? Did he give evil back? No, he overcame evil with good. And the good was not just sort of a pittance good, it was the sovereign grace and the sovereign love as he lavished us with the person and the work of Jesus and granted to us life eternal. He did not give us what we deserved, he decidedly gave us what we do not deserve. And that is why we say that his grace is amazing. Now, friends, I want you to know this is a two-part message, okay? So more on this next weekend. But I wonder today what situation and what person might God be, through this text, calling you to make peace with? It's probably the person whose name or face has been coming to your mind as I've been giving this message today. And if you're saying to yourself, well, it can't be that person, it's probably that person. Are you willing today, as a follower of Jesus, to apply a non-retaliatory faith and to leave room for God's wrath and to heat burning coals and to not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good? What is a practical good that you could do for your perceived enemy in your life? Would you think about that? Why don't you pray about it? And why don't we all ask God what he would have us to do as we seek to follow a non-retaliatory Savior?